if you could take Elizabeth and then drop her off, I, 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 I'm not going to be able to pick her up because we started late. And then, okay, I'll take her. You could drop her off here afterward. When you, after you leave. I just want to let you know before the lesson starts. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, drop her off. Well, no, drop her off. Okay. All right. So we're going to be in Revelation chapter 20. And today we're going to be studying the topic of the millennium. This is a, uh, a very difficult subject in some degrees. Um, it's controversial in the sense that there's no controversy over it, and, but in the sense that many Christians disagree on these fine points. So I believe last week Naveen brought to you guys the doctrine of the return of Christ. And uh, there are some basics to the return of Christ which we all agree on. We agree that Christ will return bodily, physically, invisibly. Right? There's no invisible, mysterious returns of Christ. And we believe that when Christ returns, evil will be punished and right, the righteous will prevail. Um, and we believe that, you know, in the end game, when it's all said and done, there's going to be a new heavens, new earth. The question then becomes, how do we get there? What order of events do these things take place? The resurrection of the dead, of course, is also included in there. Pardon me. And so today, we're going to look at how that happens with the question of the millennium. So before we begin, I'd like to open in prayer. I'm going to ask Jivin, would you open us in prayer? Amen. All right, so let's read in the Bible and see where we get this concept of millennium. And in chapter 20, the 20th chapter of Revelation, beginning in verse 1, we read this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the keys to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he may not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years was ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. And then I saw thrones and seated on them for those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received the mark on their foreheads and on their hands. They came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will reign with him for a thousand years. Well, I think we know where the concept of the word millennium comes from. Because the word millennium... Is literally means a thousand years. And that phrase is repeated twice in this passage, the thousand years. It's referring primarily to the period of time that Satan is bound with a chain in a bottomless pit. And how you interpret that is going to determine how you understand the millennium. And it's going to explain how you view not only the rest of this chapter, but all of eschatology. In fact, your millennial view will directly influence your view of Scripture and hermeneutics altogether. Um, eschatological positions have a way of um, forcing all of Scripture to fit into a certain viewpoint to make the system work. And I say that 
all of this, when we come to these topics, we have to have a sense of grace with each other and charity. Because there are many people of different positions on this that we love and that we disagree with and that we may agree with them on a lot of host of other things. For example, John MacArthur is a dispensationalist. He's a progressive dispensationalist. He takes a different view of the millennium than I would. Um, there are different people who are amillennials. Um, you know, many in the 1689 camp that, like we are, are 60, uh, amillennial believers. Uh, postmillennialism is a big one right now. That's, a, uh, um, that's being um, pushed forward by men like Doug Wilson and Jeff Durbin. And then you have people like... Uh, that are historical prima, which is probably one of the most predominant views in uh, Southern Seminary and a lot of Southern Baptist churches. Um, and, and one thing we could say is that all of these views of the millennium have strengths and weaknesses. Uh, some of them are more stronger than others. Your hermeneutic, how you view the, the whole of Scripture, how all of Scripture is interpreted, biblical theology, is going to influence a lot on how you come to these conclusions. Um, and, and, you could, and, and here's another thing to note in all of this, is that you can change your mind. I, when I first got saved, I was a dispensationalist. I was a premillennial dispensationalist. Like most people in the 90s, I was caught up in the whole Left Behind series, and I, uh, I was waiting and looking for the red heifer in Israel and the third temple to be built, and I thought Silvio Berlusconi was the Antichrist, and me and my friends used to have these little uh, uh, discernment hours where we'd search the internet when it was in its virgin years, and we were convinced that Silvio Berlusconi, the Prime Minister of Italy, was the Antichrist. We had so much evidence, but lo and behold, we were wrong. Um, from there, I grew in my faith, and I became a historical premillennialist, which I was for the majority of my Christian years, and I still think is a very strong position, and I couldn't say I renounced it. I would say if if I'm wrong in amillennialism, historical premillennialism would be the best option next. But now I am an amillennialist. So I have changed my mind three times in the 30 years that I've been a Christian. So that's okay. You can change your mind. James White was an amillennialist for most of his career. And as of recently, he is now a postmillennialist. He has joined the Jeff Durbin and Doug Wilson camp. And so... We, as students of Scripture, examine these subjects. They're very difficult. They're not easy to understand. And as such, as you grow, you're gonna, your views might change, and that's okay. What we have to understand is we're not going to be dogmatic on these views. We're not going to say, well, if you're a premillennialist, I'm breaking fellowship with you. Or if you're a postmillennialist, I can't talk to you. You're, you're a heretic. That's, that's not charitable. Right? When we exclude people from membership of the church and say you have to be a dispensational premillennial to be a member of our church, that's, that is uh, not the litmus test of true orthodoxy. But we have to be careful that we do not hold people up to standards that are, we ought not to be dogmatic on. With that said, let's get into our topic. What is the millennium? Well, the millennium is simply this. It is referred to as the messianic millennium. It is, uh, it is based on the, period, the passage we just read and it refers to a thousand year reign of Christ where Satan is bound. Um, and, and how one views this millennium will dictate how you view the rest of the book of Revelation. Our goal for this section and the next, if we can't complete it, um, we'll, we'll see how things go, um, will be to examine these four primary views of the millennium and discuss their merit there are differing views in even our own church. As I said, uh, not only do we have differences of opinion in the larger evangelical world, but there are differences of positions right here in grace and truth, and that's okay. All right, uh, key events in the millennium. As we've seen so far, there is the binding of Satan. This is the primary event that is the catalyst of the millennium, and at the end of the period, he will be released, and uh, he will lead a worldwide, a global rebellion against Christ, and the question is, to what extent or degree is Satan bound, right? Is he completely bound? Is he partially bound? What is the, what are, what, how broad or narrow do we interpret the binding of Satan? Right? That's important. Secondly, the first resurrection, there is a reference to those who will rule with Christ 
during this period. So there's, there's two resurrections. It says that there will be a resurrection of those who have been persecuted and, and they will re reign with Christ during this period and then there are those who will be resurrected at the end. The rest will be resurrected at the end. And then there's the reign of Christ. This is referring to a, a future time. Is, it, is this something that's, that is yet to come or is it happening now? Is this current? Right? How do we understand the, the millennial reign of Christ? Right. Finally, we see that there is a great, 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 great right throne of judgment, great white throne of judgment. Um, at the end of the period, Jesus will judge the world. That's in verses um, 7 through 15. Um, at the end of the period, Jesus will judge the world, and this will be the final judgment. So then the question is, is the millennium literally a thousand years, or is it meant to be figurative? When does it take place? And is it now or is it in the future? So with that said, I'm going to put forward the four, the four traditional views, the, the four primary views in this schema. And, um, and that is amillennialism, postmillennialism, historic premillennialism, and dispensational premillennialism. I'm going to give you the brief definition for all four. Amillennial, well, first of all, the, the suffix millennialism is... is uh, or the root word millennialism is in each word of these, rather. And the prefix uh, determines what kind of view you have. So uh, we took ah, millennialism. What does ah mean, generally? None. None. So the ah millennialist says, oh, we don't believe in a literal thousand years. We believe that this is just speaking of a, a figuratively of a long period of time where Christ is reigning. Um, and I'll get more to that. Post-millennialism, what, what is the word post? What does the prefix post mean? After, right? So it's saying the millennial Christ, millennial reign of Christ will happen after, or the reign of Christ will happen after uh, the millennium. This is, um, um, this is, this means, as we'll see what post-millennialism means, that the church age will continue. There's a similarity between amillennialism and premillennialism is that we're in the reign of Christ, and that little by little, the reign of, the whole world will be Christianized. And as the whole world is Christianized, It'll usher in the golden age of Messiah. And Christ will return for a thousand-year rule on earth once the world is Christianized. I do not believe. That's probably the least probable one in all my view. But, again, there are some very respected men who hold this view. So i got to contain my own self in my sarcastic uh, skepticism. <laughs> then there is historic premillennialism. And that is, um, there are two premillennials. Obviously, the prefix pre means before, right? So it's saying that um, we're talking about that before the millennium, um, there's going to be the return of Christ. This is all referring to the return of Christ. Uh, he will refer, return before the millennium, and he'll establish a millennial reign. Um, and then after that, uh, he will, um, will be the end. Uh, the difference between historic and dispensational is that Historic premillennialism dates back to the church fathers. It was a view that was held by most of the early church. Um, dispensational premillennialism is something that developed in the 19th century um, and came out of uh, dispensational theology, which broke up the time periods and covenants into seven distinct periods. So um, they're, they're very different views. All right. Any questions up to this point? Any questions? We, our statement of faith, which is the fire statement of faith, does not specify a millennial perspective. So to be a member of Grace and Truth Church, we do not require a, a, a specific perspective. So if you look up here on the you look up here, you could see there's different comparisons here. And I, I want to, I had, I have this uh, slide that I, you know, I, I did this years ago, by the way. So this is an old lesson. And, and I really, it's good work. Why should I do it again, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's the good thing about having 20 years under your belt of ministry. You have a lot of good work you did. Um, so here we see there were four distinct um, versions of the millennium. And you get a visual of it, right? So the visual is you see the post-tribulation premillennialism, which is dispensationalism, 
Um, you see there's uh, the Christian age, then there's a tribulation. Christ comes, there's a millennium, then there's the last judgment. Um, you see pre-tribulational dispensationalism. This is, uh, I'm sorry, the one, first one's historical. The second one is dispensational. And that's where um, they believe that there's three comings of Christ. There's a second coming for the church, which is the rapture. We're taken out of the world. Then there's a seven-year tribulation. Then there's another second coming. Well, I guess you want to call it the third coming at that point um, for the Gentile church. Uh, and then there's the millennium. And that's a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. And then there's the last judgment, uh, the final judgment. So there's three comings of, three second comings of Christ. The amillennial view, which is at the bottom, uh, the millennium is symbolic of the reign of Christ now in the church age. Christ is coming back, and that's it. New heavens, new earth. That's my view. Very simple. Then you have post-millennial view, and that's that we're in the church age now, and uh, the, we're going to Christianize the world, and it'll go, it'll kind of just blend into the millennium. Right? It'll just, you, won't, you won't really notice. Also, we'll enter the golden age of Messiah, we'll like, and, and all the world will be Christianized, at least majority of the world. Um, and by the way, post-millennials don't believe that every human being will be saved, but a vast majority will be saved, but that all governments will, will obey the gospel, and all governments will uh, use the law of God and the word of God to rule. And then, and by the way, there's, there's even nuances within post-millennialism of that. And then you have the millennium, and then Christ comes back. So post-millennialism and amillennialism both have a lot in common with historic premillennialism. Those three um, both have uh, an understanding where the reign of the church is significant um, and that uh, the millennial period, uh, to some extent, you know, amillennialism, post-millennialism believe it's now, or premillennialism believe it's later. All right, it's a little confusing. Um, and that brings me to the concept of the analogy of faith. Anoglia fide. All right, so what are, we, what are we talking about? Analogy of faith. It means no part of Scripture should be interpreted in such a way as to render it in conflict, yielding contradictory positions with what is clearly taught elsewhere. It means that when we try to figure this out, Scripture must interpret Scripture. And so if there's a clear contradiction, if something's not making sense, you have to question, does this position, is it biblical? We, you know, sometimes we, we have a belief, and if it's not making sense and the Scripture's not lining up with the rest of the teaching of Scripture, then it, and it's, if you're saying something that's way off, then it's got to be wrong. You can't make the rest of Scripture say something you want it to because you're stuck on something being one thing. You know, so, for example, Pentecostals have a very strong view of speaking in tongues as a sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit for all believers. And they interpret all of Scripture to mean that that's the case. So all the views of Pentecost and the mini Pentecost in the book of Acts are interpreted through that lens. Because when you have a conviction that this is true, when you interpret one scripture a certain way, you have to make everything else contort to that same dimension. So no single statement of scripture is admittedly obscure. Passage should be permitted to set aside doctrine that's clearly established by several passages in admittedly clear context. So the Obscure must always give way to the clear. Go ahead. Yeah. That's isogesis. Yeah. That's iso. Yeah. Iso means means you want to read into the text what you want it to say. Exegesis means you get out of the text what you want it to say. X means out, ISO means in. All right, um, so we talked about Scripture interpreting Scripture. We talked about interpretive difficulties. Let's talk about amillennialism. This is, uh, this is where I, I start with amillennialism because I believe that this is, this is probably the most biblical, the most clearest of all the views I don't know, that's up to Anthony. Anthony, can you make that larger? Wasn't the first um, 
Augustine. Augustine was the first person to, up until Augustine, the early church were all premillennials. They all believed in a future coming reign of Christ. You know, you look in the early church fathers, Papias, Polycarp, they, they were looking forward to the literal return of Christ in a thousand year reign from Jerusalem. So they were his, what we would consider historical premillennials. Augustine is the first church father to develop the amillennial position. Um, and, you know, again, this, uh, hermeneutically, the hermeneutics in the early church were varied. Um, you know, the Antiochian school was, was, was most reflective of ours. It was the uh, historical grammatical. Uh, Augustine himself was very allegorical in a lot of his teachings, like most of the church fathers. So they used the allegorical method, which, as we know, could, could lead to a lot of erroneous doctrines. Um, but I think Augustine's view of, of the millennium, I think, was, was, is good because what it does is it looks at all the Bible. See, what amillennialism does, it looks at all the promises of the Old Testament and finds all of the promises fulfilled in the person of Christ. And so rather than looking for literal interpretations for everything, we have to see that there are spiritual fulfillments in Christ. And, 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 and the kingdom of God and understanding the, what the kingdom of God is in its relationship, the, the, you know, already, but not yet, has major significance in how we understand this. Um, so Augustine was the first one to introduce this and, and format, formulate this schema. And, and the church, the Roman Catholic Church, ran with it. And so, you know, Roman Catholicism, by and large, is amillennial. Um, you know, and they took it literal, right, in terms of the reign of Christ with the Holy Roman Empire. Um, and then as the church reformed, the reformers held on to these views as well, but they saw it a lot different. They saw now the church of Rome as the Antichrist and the beast. Um, it was the Antichrist system. And, um, they, but they still upheld the idea that the millennium was not literal, but that the kingdom of God was not so much visible in the church of Rome, but like Jesus said in Luke 17, the kingdom of God is not here, it's not there, it's within you. It's where Christ rules in the hearts of his people. So Revelation 20 is then describing Christ's reign from heaven with his saints in heaven. It maintains that there's um, it maintains that there is no future earthly millennium. There's no literal thousand-year period. It is a figurative meaning. The binding of Satan took effect. Um, when Christ first came and Satan was bound and then loosed at the end of the age. So a big part of understanding amillennialism goes to Matthew chapter 12. So turn with me there. Matthew's Gospel chapter 12. In verse, verse 22 down to 32. Can someone read that for me, please, nice and loud? Beelzebub. Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How 
by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come Stop there. Stop there. If by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And look at verse 29. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So, so the question of Christ casting out demons was a question of orthodoxy for the Jews. Is Jesus Christ casting out demons in the name of God, or is he doing it in the name of Satan? So Jesus addresses their logic and says, you, you're, you're questioning me is illogical because how can Satan cast out Satan? It makes no sense. He says, however, if I am casting out demons by the Spirit of God, then you know the kingdom of God has come upon you. The, the messianic age has begun. The sp- age of the Holy Spirit, where the, the power of God is known, is being demonstrated to you by the casting out of demons and Christ's entire public ministry was, was identified with him constantly exercising demons out of people. It was to demonstrate his power over the realm of darkness and over Satan. As he says in John's gospel, for now the judge, the king, the prince of this world is judge and he came to cast out the judge or the prince of this world rather. And so we see here that that Christ has already undertaken the defeat of Satan in his public ministry, and he uses this analogy to describe it. He said, if a strong man enters, if you, well, someone enters a strong man's house and plunders his goods, how could he do it unless he first binds the strong man? Right? Let's say you want to break into Hulk Hogan's house. Hulk Hogan's a believer now. He's a big guy. He's a strong man. Well, you're not going to be able to rob his house that easily if he's on the loose, are you? You gotta, you gotta bind him, right? You gotta tie him up. He's a strong guy; he might break those bonds. And what Jesus is saying is, he's coming; he's bound Satan. This brings the question then: To what extent has Satan been bound? We go back to Revelation 20. In Revelation chapter 20, you look at verse 3. It says, When he was bound for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Till the thousand years were ended. What does that mean? When Christ came, he came to the Jewish people, correct? He was the Jewish Messiah. John tells us he came to his own, but his own received him not. He was rejected. Now, there was no plan B, like the dispensationalists say, but it was always a plan A. The plan A was that through the hardness of Israel's heart, Christ was going to save all the world to fulfill the promise to Abraham that through his seed, all the nations would be blessed. And so through Christ's death and resurrection, as we learned even in today's preaching through Luke, Christ was sent to the world not just to be the Savior of Israel, but to be the Savior of the world, Jews and Gentiles. See, up until the first century, God had dealt exclusively with the Jewish people. If you wanted to know God, the only way you could come to God was through the Jewish religion. If you wanted a relationship with God, it was through the Torah. It was through the law. You had to be circumcised. You had to be baptized and cleansed of your Gentile filth and, and pretty much brought in as a Gentile a proselyte into the Jewish faith and come under the law of Moses. But the law of Moses was never intended to save people. Right? It's a tutor, right? And God says to the law is a tutor. It's a temporary fixture to bring us to Christ, to bring us to the gospel, right? So Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to all who believe. Um, So now that 
that Christ has come, his death and resurrection, it's no longer we have a relationship to God through the law, but we get to God through Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. There's no way to the Father but by me. If you want a relationship with Jesus Christ, it is exclusive, a relationship with God the Father is exclusively through Jesus Christ. Up until the first century, the nations were deceived. You look at one of the themes of the book of Acts as Paul goes out in his missionary endeavors, right? He even says this later in Acts 26 that the, the nations are in darkness. Acts 17, when Paul's preaching in Athens, he says you, you grope around as men in darkness. The world is deceived. They worship pagan idols. Romans chapter 1, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness from men who suppress the truth that although they receive natural revelation, and although they know God, they don't worship Him as God, but worship the created things and worship that which is created rather than the Creator who is forever blessed. Amen. The whole world is deceived. They're, they're disillusioned. They're worshiping pagan idols. But now Satan is no longer deceiving the nations. The gospel goes forth. And the book of Acts is a, is, is a testimony of the progress of the gospel that Satan no longer is binding the nations. Remember what Satan said to uh, Jesus in the temptation, we'll see this in Luke, right? In the next week, he says, bow before me and I'll give you all the nations to bow before you for they've been, their power has been given to me. There was a sense where Satan has real power over the nations. But he's been bound. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the early church generally believed that that meant going into Hades or, or Abraham's bosom. And I think that's where the binding of Satan takes place in that view. But what about, like, the reformers generally held the view that descending into hell means that you just descended into a grave or, like, a physical burial. So, how does the, the view of binding of Satan work in that view, where uh, we take the Apostles' Creed to mean that? Well, the descent into hell wasn't even, you know, that was added later. That was a, an addition in the 16th, 6th century, I believe, so. I can't answer that right now. I don't know. I don't have, I don't, ha I don't know specifically what the early church held to in that view, but I do know that in the Apostles' Creed, it was an addition added later on. It, 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 Christ bound Satan in the sense that he was restrained by the Lord to no longer deceive the nations. The gospel goes forth and the, and the Gentiles are now can come to faith in Christ. So, so all right, look at chap, Acts chapter 26. So it's more of a Correct. Instead of like a physical Correct. Not a physical binding. This is a spiritual binding. Remember, amillennialism... Remember what amillennialism, and this is something hermeneutically we have to understand. You can't read Revelation and interpret everything literally. Yeah. Oh, there's a bottomless pit and we're going to lift the lid up and we're going to put chains around the devil and throw him in there and close the lid and put a lock and key on it. That's, that, that's all allegory. It's figurative. Yeah. And so the key is to draw out what is the significance and meaning. What is the symbolism here trying to tell us to? And it means that, that Satan has been severely restricted in his ability, right? Jesus came to destroy the works of Satan, John tells us. You know, all throughout the New Testament, we're, we're told how Satan's power has been severely limited. Uh, one of the most powerful passages for me is in Colossians 2, where it talks about uh, Christ's triumph and his openly parading his enemies, the spiritual powers and principalities, using the same imagery of a Roman victory parade. Um, Satan has been rendered a serious blow at the cross. Through Christ's death and resurrection, Satan's power has been restricted. Christ's kingdom has come. And so there's almost, we're living in this, this time of the already but not yet. Christ's kingdom is here, but there's still a sense where Satan still seems real, right? So he's been restricted and bound in a sense that he can no longer deceive the nations. That's why... There are people from every nation in the world, every nation, tribe, and tongue who believe in Christ. 
who are believers. The church is not just made of Jews, but it's an international community. That never existed. This was very radical for the first century person, by the way. You know, for the, for the apostles to think of salvation extending to Gentiles from other nations was foreign. It was, it was almost offensive to them. Correct. You go back to Genesis, right? Chapter 10 and 11 talks about, um, you know, the Tower of Babel. It talks about the different nations that dispersed, you know, and out of all that, God chooses Abraham and he makes a covenant with Abraham. And he says to Abraham, he makes the covenant with him about the seed, right? I'm give you the land of Canaan. I'm going to give you uh, as many descendants as you can, you can't even count them. But through your seed, the nations will be blessed. The whole point is that Judgment came to disperse the nations, but God's plan is always to save the nations. And he starts with Abraham and makes a covenant with him. And that's where we see the, the pro progression of the covenants revealing, bringing us ultimately to the new covenant, the covenant of grace, where all of the world, all nations come to God through Jesus Christ. Go ahead. That... That is correct. And uh, so the post millennial belief is saying this so things are going to get better and better. And correct. Most people will become Christian. So why is the amillennial view saying this about things are getting worse and worse? That's a good question. So I think what we have to understand is, is and in, in, in what that means for the tribulation. I'm going to move on from the binding of Satan at this point. Um, but I think, well, actually, no, I want, there's one verse I wanted to look at. Look in Acts chapter 6, 26. He says this, uh, look at verse 16, when Paul gives an account of his salvation, his, his, his um, conversion, He's, this is the Lord Jesus speaking to him, he says, but rise, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified in me. That's a very powerful verse. That's the gospel mandate. Go forth into the nations. You're turning people from Satan to God, from darkness to light. The kingdom of God has burst into reality. The kingdom of Satan is still Real to some extent, right? Because we're warned, be careful of your adversary, the devil, for he roams like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So he still has power, but his power has been severely limited to a degree. The best way I've heard it described for me in the amillennial perspective is this. How many of you know our World War II buffs? David, because he's a history teacher. What happened on D-Day, David? The Allies invaded France and freed from Nazi Germany. Yeah. That was a, why is it called D-Day? It was the storming of the beach in Normandy. It was, it was Decision Day. It was the day that the war was turned around. The Nazis were sent, were sent packing. It was a major blow. We lost a lot of men on the beach of Normandy. It was a, it was a horrible fight. But it was the beginning of the end of the war. The Nazis were in retreat. The Soviets were coming from the east. We were invading from the west. We were closing in on the Nazis. Berlin was getting bombarded by both sides. Hitler was in his bunker. Hitler was still in power. From his bunker, the Fuhrer was still giving dictates and people were obeying him. People were giving their life for the Fuhrer. He still had power but his power had been greatly reduced. In every step, the Allied forces and the Soviets made pushing inward on Berlin, the less and less the Fuhrer's power existed until eventually 
He got a gun and blew his brains out, and he didn't have any power anymore. The Nazis were defeated, and V-Day was the day where we we had victory. So from D-Day to V-Day was a period of time where the Nazis still had power in Western Europe. They still, they still were in control, but slowly and surely we were making incursions into Nazi territory. And little by little, Hitler... You see, Hitler had been essentially bound. That's the binding of Satan, D-Day. Severely limited in his ability and power. But V-Day, which is when Satan will be totally vanquished, won't be till the second coming of Christ. Go ahead. Yeah, the power of Satan to the power of God, yeah. So isn't it essentially saying Satan's power influence influence is reducing and would making more of a better place like Connor was supposed to was saying? Yes and no. Yes and no. And that is because we have to take the rest of Scripture into account. Remember what I said before? We can't have one portion of Scripture interpret the rest of Scripture. Because if we leave it right there, I would say, yeah, you know, it makes sense. We're getting, you know, we're getting, we're, we're incursion. But, but also remember, the closer we got to Berlin, the more the Nazis fought back. A lot of, a lot of Allied soldiers died on the, on the battlefield to win that war. The battle heated up. The closer the enemy gets to losing, the more they kill and fight back. And so when you read the book of Revelation, and this is where it gets to, the, the concept of the tribulation in the amillennial view means that since the beginning of the church age, there are going to be cycles of tribulation and cycles of peace. If you read through the book of Revelation, you read about the seven trumpets, the seven bulls of wrath, the seven, all of these judgments. The number seven means is completion of perfection. It's a, it's, a, it's a number that is symbolic. And it demonstrates to us that throughout history, there are constant cycles of judgment and of wrath. And, and the whole point, if you read the seven bowls of wrath and the seven trumpets, what you read is you read an increasing of intensity of judgments. The first bowl, the judgment is bad. The second bowl gets worse. The third is even worse. The fourth is horrific. The fifth is really bad. The sixth, each bowl increases in intensity. And so what you're seeing is cycles of judgment throughout the church age. And, and they come in intensity, they come in waves of intensity, they diminish, they come in waves of intensity, and they diminish. And this goes back to what Jesus said in Matthew 24. Turn with me in your Bibles. Yeah, I knew I wouldn't get to cover much of anything else. <laughs> I barely got to scratch the surface of this today. It's a very... Huh? Probably need four Sundays, but I got Jim and lined up to teach next week. So, um, chapter twenty-four, Jesus on verse three says, "As he sat on the Mount of Olives, disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age.'" And Jesus answered them, "See to you that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ.'" And they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Right, so, so if you're seeing, we're, oh, we're in war now. We're in war in Ukraine and Israel and Palestine are at war. And we're, we're almost on the verge of a civil war in America. We're in the end times. No, Jesus is saying that this, this began in the beginning of the church age. This has been happening since the very beginning. He says these are just the beginning of birth pains. You just had, you just had a baby. So when your wife started having contractions, what? How often would they come? But but when it started, it wasn't that bad, right? Yeah, when it started. How how frequent would they come when it first started? When they first 
every 40 minutes. So, so the time in between got less and the pains got worse. Those are called birth pangs. It's the same thing. In the church age, there's birth pangs. What's going to happen is the intensity is going to increase of the troubled times. They're going to become more intense and closer together. If you look throughout church history, you know, times of difficulty and persecution and turmoil are spread out. And there's seasons of peace. As you get closer to the second coming, it's going to be like a woman in birth. And this goes back to the Jewish view of the birth of the Messianic age. Right? In Judaism, they talked often about the Messianic age and they, and they used the metaphor often to describe the, the birth of the Messianic age like a woman in travail giving birth. And so that's what Christ is telling us is that in the church age, in, during this period of time where we're where making incursions into the kingdom of Satan and Satan is resisting and, and you read Re- Revelation chapter 12 and 13 and, and the dragon is infuriated, a third of angels are swept for envil and he's, he's, like a, a, he's got his mouth wide open for the woman giving birth. It's a grotesque view. But there's the church. The birth pains of the church. And Satan is there with his mouth wide open, ready to devour. When satanic opposition comes in cycles, and it comes in waves, and it comes in contractions. And as you get through these cycles, the closer you get to the end of the age, they come more intense and less frequent. The, the intervals become closer together until you're right at the end of the age and persecution is abounding. 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us that before the coming of Christ, the man of lawlessness will be revealed and there'll be great apostasy. So that is why the post-millennial view does not work because 2 Thessalonians 2 is in the book. Yep. Yeah. Yes, in Second Thessalonians two. Um, yeah, we, you know, as we progress towards the end of the age in the church age in the amillennial schema, things are things. The cycles of intensity of the the travails of the birth pains of Messiah are getting closer to the end. Um, and yeah, Second Thessalonians two tells us there are two things that will happen before Christ returns. That is the apostasy, the great falling away of the church. Um, I think we're seeing that now. That's me. I don't want to be a newspaper theologian, but I mean, there's great apostasy by and large. But then again, there was great apostasy in the Roman, Roman Empire for years, the Holy Roman Empire. I mean, you think about the Dark Ages, like for a thousand years, the Church of Rome ruled Europe. An apostate religion with an apostate gospel ruled the Western world for a long time. All right, so, and yet, in the Reformation, it was like, it was like new life was breathed into the church. So we don't know the times and seasons, right? We don't know what God is doing, which is why we have to be so cautious that we don't try to pinpoint the second coming. I feel that Christ is coming soon. I think the world is getting pretty awful, but who am I? I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. Yeah. So that is like you reference in the scriptures that our Christians in the Bible as um we must not take one event and think of it 
Absolutely. I mean, listen, if you were an evangelical Christian living in the 1940s during World War II, many evangelical Christians thought that Adolf Hitler was the Antichrist and that the world was coming to an end. And had I lived then, I might have made the same conclusions. But Adolf Hitler was defeated and the world was over. But what we do know, what we can take away from that, at the very least, which I see, is that Hitler is just a type of the Antichrist. Nobody knows the day or hour that, that the Lord is going to return. Satan doesn't know, but Satan is always getting someone ready to be the next Antichrist. Whether it's an Antiochus Epiphanes, whether it's Caesar Nero, whether it's Caligula, whether it's Napoleon, whether it's Hitler, Satan is always raising up someone to do his dirty work, another, another manifestation of the beast and the beast government. But God says, not yet. But when the final beast does arrive and is revealed on the, on the world scene, the last of the revelations of Antichrist, it's going to be horrific. Uh, Anne Marie. Yeah, what I've seen is, and this is just my own view, is like a mounting in the intensity yeah. of lawlessness that, unless I'm mistaken, I don't think we've ever had such a time that we're seeing now where women are becoming men and men are, you, you know. Weird stuff, yeah, really. Could get a lot worse. I think we haven't seen anything yet. As bad as it is, it could be far worse. What Christians endured in the Roman Empire was far worse than anything we do. I was just reading yesterday. Did anybody know about the the bronze bull, the form of torture that the Romans used? Yeah, you cooked them to death. So you got a big bronze bull and you, you threw someone inside of it closed the door, put a lock on it and then you put a fire underneath communists did that too, communists did that too. So, so things can get a lot worse Anne Marie, right now we're seeing immorality which is unrestrained, utter wickedness and in that lawlessness yeah it's going to get, it's going to get worse I'm of the opinion right now See, we don't know what's going to happen in the, in the world, in the big, the big scene. But we know enough how God deals with nations. And I believe that, and I believe I'm in good company with many believers who, who feel that America's in decline spiritually. And we're on our way down the tubes and under, we're under God's judgment. We've been under God's judgment. The, the lavish homosexuality that we see and just sexual perversion all around is, is not, you know... It's, we're not, that's not bringing the judgment. That is the judgment. That's God giving people over. Romans 1.26. Yeah, when, when a society turns its back on God so much, God says, okay, you don't want me? Go ahead. Go live without me. And he gives a society over to a reprobate mind. And MacArthur said it recently. The state of America right now is irreversible, and I agree with him. Apart from a major, major revival, like, Beyond that of Jonathan Edwards, our nation's headed, headed towards, just look at history. Just look at history. All right. Um, how long have I been? How long am I on, Anthony? 54 minutes. So I think at this point, there's not much, I, I barely got to, I'm going to go through a few more points and bring this to and I'll do a 60-minute one. Um. So the, one more point on amillennialism. There will be one final resurrection on the last day, both the righteous and the wicked. Not the wicks, the wicked. So in other words, you know, going back to John 5, 28 and 29, Jesus says that on the last day, uh, both the righteous and the wicked will be raised, one to eternal judgment and one to eternal punishment. So that's the position of most millennials, amillennials. So you see here, this is a great uh, illustration. Um, you see the cross there, prior to the Old Testament. Um, at the cross, the inauguration of the kingdom of God, 
creation of the church, believing Jews and Gentiles in one new man. You go throughout the present church age, and you have the millennium. During that, that's the millennium, the present church age. We, we're co-regents with Christ. Satan is bound, and then he's loosed at the end of the age. Um, and so to, to, to go back to what you're saying about the binding and loosing of Satan, the Amillennials believe that as we get towards the end of the church age, Satan will be loosed. And maybe that's exactly what we're seeing. The heightened sense of rebellion against God. Because right, what are we really seeing? We're seeing rebellion against God. When people say, I'm not a boy, I'm a girl. That's not rebellion against the government. That's saying, God, I'm rebelling against you. How dare you tell me what my gender is? I'll determine my gender. And what we're seeing here is that the governments and anything in the world, they're affirming this kind of belief system. So the governments and people are, are gone. There's a, there's a universal sort of rebellion. But Satan hasn't truly been loosed until we see a really great persecution. We have not seen, at least in the West, persecution to the degrees that we've seen in countries such as Iran and Iraq, Saudi Arabia, China. Not here in the West, at least. But... And I say this with a but. That doesn't mean it's not coming. Times and seasons change. The Jews lived pretty peacefully in Egypt for a long period of time, 400 years. And then one day there was a pharaoh who what? He forgot who Joseph was. He didn't know who Joseph was. Who are, the, who are these people? Why are we, why are we letting them... Just remember something. You could see it already. There is an intense hatred for Christians among the world. I'll just give you an example. The whole like LGBT thing. Why don't they go to Muslim bakeries and go after the Muslims? They go after the Christians. Why do you think they go after the Christians? Because there's a natural satanic hatred. The Muslims, they're on our side. It's a satanic religion. It's a spiritual battle. And you're not getting, this isn't about flesh and blood, this is spiritual. But the Christians, we, there's something got to be authentic about Christianity that they're targeting Christians. There is an intense hatred towards Christianity which will only intensify the only thing that's stopping people from killing Christians right now is what? Grace of God, yeah, there's one more other thing. What, what else is restraining? What's restraining people from coming in here and shooting us up? The law! What happens if someone comes in here with a gun? They're going to jail if they don't kill themselves in the process, right? Because that's what mass shooters do. They kill everyone, then they kill themselves. They're going to jail. There's laws that say you can't go kill Christians. But who's to say those laws don't change one day? Oh, that'll never happen, Bob. <laughs> So said the Jews who lived in Germany during World War II. So said Christians during the Reformation period who lived in England. The laws can change any day. A lot can happen. All I could see happen, and there's many scenarios... But with all the political disturbances going on in our country right now, if something goes down really bad, and they could point it and say it's the Christians, they're behind it, we will suffer. Even if we had no hand in it, we will suffer. Because the wrath of those who are not believers are going to say, the Christians, they, they were behind it. They, 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 they supported it. But we have to be careful. That's why we ought to, that's why we need to be focused on the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of men. Jesus is our king. Go ahead, Dave. You want to say something? Oh, was it Jonathan? I'm sorry. Superfluous. Thank you. All right. Um, that's it for today. I'm just going to, you see the, you know, new heavens, new earth. Um, let me just see one more thing. Okay. You want to bring me scriptural proof? 
we went through a lot of the scriptural proof. Um, and that's it. I'm done with all millennialism. I would need, as Sister Marva said, three more lessons. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to teach you about all the other views because I'm an amillennialist. So I, wanna, I want you to be an too. <laughs> I did my job today. You should have left it for last. No. Um, but if you are interested, um, I can at least send the slideshow. This is, I did this. Amory was here years ago. Valerie's probably when I did this as well. Yeah. I, I, did, I did the whole book of Revelation years ago. So maybe one day I'll do it again. No, it's not that bad. All right. Um, let's work, close in a word of prayer. Jason, would you do us the honors of sending us home in a word?